0: children of Israel had been in Egyptian bondage for a long time for hundreds of years and on this night they left the land of Egypt but as they were journeying in the wilderness Pharaoh had doubts why did I let them go he sends a group of chariots after the Israelites and the text tells us As the Egyptians approached the Israelites, the sea was on one side and the Egyptians were on the other and death looked certain. And the text tells us that Moses cried out to the Lord. He lifted up his hands and God sent a strong wind that divided the sea. It made a path in the midst of the sea and Israel crosses over on dry land. After Israel crosses over on dry land, the Egyptians decide to pursue them. But the sea closes and engulfs the Egyptians. They see their dead bodies along the shore. And they begin to sing. They sing, I will sing to the Lord for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has buried in the sea. The Lord is my strength. And my song. And he will become my salvation. He has become my salvation. Israel was used to singing. Proclaiming God's greatness. Singing God's great acts of deliverance for them. Praising him. Exalting him. Giving thanks to him. In the days of the judges... The Canaanite forces were powerful with their king Jabin and their military commander Sisera. But against all odds, God gave Deborah and Barak victory over these powerful forces. And they sang a song in Judges 5. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing I will sing praise to the God of Israel. It's from Judges 5 verses 1 through 3. It has always been the practice of God's people to sing of God, of His mighty works, of His deliverance, and praising His name for their rescue. Now, I can remember being taught that here are New Testament verses that deal with singing. And what we're going to try to do, we will not get through all of them tonight, but we want to look at these passages. We want to look at these passages together. What is the purpose of singing? These passages tell us these new testament passages tell us something of it we could also look at old testament passages uh, that tell us something of the purpose but but these new testament passages tell us something of the purpose for sin and how much of this applies to what we do together and collectively Are, are these just individual instructions Or are they instructions for what we do for when we come together collectively? Turn first of all to that passage in Matthew 26. But I want to ask you to keep something in mind. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the sinner of the Bible being the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And what is focal in the Bible is also focal in our worship. So it's not that God has arbitrarily arranged what we do when we come together. What we do when we come together is for the express purpose of exalting Him, of meeting our greatest need, which is relationship with God Himself, and of proclaiming his name and conforming us to his image. And so we look at the things that God has said said for us knowing that how fundamental the things he asks of us are to our spiritual well-being. The passage in Matthew 26 and verse 30 and Mark 14 verse 26, and it's the same in context, And it's the same words used in both passages. The text tells us in verse 30, Matthew 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Those words are identical in the New American Standard, in the ESV, and in the NIV. The King James' only difference is they have before him instead of a and again these are the same words in Mark 14 in verse 26 same words that are used in both cases now what does this tell us if anything about what God would expect of us <laughs> It is interesting looking at Jewish practice. In Jewish practice, the hymn they sang in connection with Passover was Psalm 113 to 118. Psalm 113 to 118. It is fascinating to look at that psalm through this lens. Why did the Jewish people sing this at Passover? Psalm 113 to 118, though on first glance, may not seem to have much to do with the Exodus. That was the hymn they sung in this Passover service. And so when we read those psalms, we need to read them with an eye back to Egypt and how God delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage. But also, it is of great significance that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was killed during Passover. He was sacrificed during Passover. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Psalm 113-118 not only looks back to deliverance from Egypt, but also looks forward to the deliverance by the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we could go on to infinity, talking about some specific ways this happens. And I am already deeply anticipating the time when our Psalms class, Lord willing, gets to these Psalms. Sometimes in the next five, ten years. But I want you to listen. Listen to these words. And think about Jesus singing these words with his disciples less than 24 hours before the crucifixion. For you have rescued. My soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 116, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. From Psalm 118, verses 16 and 17. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but live. And tell of the works of the Lord. I shall not die, but live. You have rescued my soul from death. Wouldn't it have been stunning to sing these words with Jesus and less than 24 hours later to see him hanging on the cross. But they should have led the disciples to expect the resurrection of Jesus. He has rescued my soul from death. I shall not die but live. They should have inspired hope that this was not the end of the story now how much bearing does this have on us in anything we do collectively in worship i I don't know all the answers but but i do know that Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 referred to this specific night and these specific events when he was telling the Christians in Corinth about taking the Lord's Supper. He said in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed Took bread. He talks about the night the Lord was betrayed. He talks about what the Lord did in verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. This do, or do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and said, This is a new covenant in my blood. And said, As often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. A couple of weeks ago, when we talked about that passage, we pointed out in passing that in this s- section of Scripture, you see Jesus leading prayers. In verse 26, he took some bread. And after a blessing, in verse 27 of Matthew 26, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, Jesus leads in prayer. The disciples take the Lord's Supper with Jesus. They are singing together in verse 30, as we've already stressed. And Jesus teaches the disciples on this occasion, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go away and prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And all the instruction from John 14 to John 16 goes back to this night. Now could it be that this service, this simple service with Jesus and his apostles is a pattern for what worship services should be? You see them doing many of the same things that we'll later see local churches doing. Let's look at our second passage. Acts 16, verse 25. Acts 16, verse 25. Now let's set the context for this passage. In this particular passage, Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi. As they are teaching and preaching in Philippi, there is a woman who possesses a spirit, a demon, that leads her to cry out, These men are servants of the Most High God who show us the way of salvation. Paul is annoyed by this. And Paul says, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And he casts the demon out. Her owners see their hope of gain is gone because Jesus cast out the demon, she can't tell fortunes anymore. So they lead, uh, lead, stir up the crowds against Paul and against Silas. And says these men are throwing our city in confusion. Teaching customs, it's not lawful for us as Romans to observe. These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. And the crowd rose up and tore their clothes off and beat them with rods and threw them in stocks. And as Paul and Silas are in stocks, the Bible says in verse 25 of Acts 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I can't imagine how unusual what they did was. They have been unfairly treated. They have been thrown into prison. They have been put in the uncomfortable position of stocks. And they are praying and singing. I'm sure in that situation it was not uncommon to hear people curse those who had done them wrong. And curse maybe even their gods. But Paul and Silas are singing and praying. And everyone is listening to them. Now, this is not in the context of a worship of sin. And even if, even if instruments were used in New Testament worship, you wouldn't expect them when Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in this Philippian prison. It's not so much a statement about what we do in worship collectively as this is a statement about the value and purpose of our singing and the things that can come through our singing. The text tells us, as you well know, that as they had been singing and praying, that suddenly there was an earthquake. And when the earthquake shook, The Bible tells us that uh, the prisoners were freed, the doors were open. The jailer seeing all of this, seeing that the doors were open, and knowing that the penalty for letting a prisoner escape was that he died in his place. The, the, the jailer took the sword and was about to kill himself. Probably there were no lights where the prisoners were. He just sees the darkness and thinks the prisoners had escaped. He's about to kill himself. And Paul sees it and takes an interest in him and shouts, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and said, sirs, what must I do? Be said, what? if he asked them that question? Why did he ask them? Why not ask somebody else? They were the ones praying and singing hymns of praise. They were the ones that took an interest in him and told him, don't kill yourself. He fell down before Paul and Silas and asked them about Salvation. I don't know what Paul and Silas were singing, but I do know this. Singing proclaims his name, his salvation, to an unbelieving world. Now, one of the songs that Brian let us in a moment ago was the new song. Listen to a couple of passages from the Psalms that use that term, the new song. This is Psalm 40 and verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Listen, many will see and fear and will trust in God. Singing psalms, or singing songs of what God has done to deliver us, leads people to see, to understand, to come to a sense of fear or awe of God, to put their trust in God. Many will see and fear and will trust in God. Another passage that uses that word new song is Psalm 96. Listen to the first few verses. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among all peoples. They are telling of God. They're telling of God's greatness. They're telling of His deeds. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all gods. Singing proclaims God's mighty words. Now I know one thing that some have done is they have gathered in public places, shopping malls, bus stops, At the busiest time. And they started a not so spontaneous, but trying to make it look spontaneous. singing. And one burst forth singing amazing grace or some such song. And everybody joins in from all kinds of places. And sometimes people who haven't been a part of the group that planned it join in the song. But it leads others to see and hopefully to turn to the Lord, to turn to Him. It's interesting. But when the jailer sees everything that's transpired, the Bible says he fell down verse 29 before Paul and Silas and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is not the exact same word used in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-five. But it is in this same family of words. For 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll later discuss tonight, talks about the assembly and a purpose of the assembly. He emphasizes the value of prophecy or teaching over the value of speaking in different tongues or different languages. Because he says, if all speak in tongues, the one who is ungifted may say, you're out of your mind, you're mad. But if one prophesies, the unbeliever or the ungifted is convicted by all and he falls on his face and worships God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is said there about prophecy and teaching basically happens as a result of Paul and Cyrus's song. And concern for this jailer, he falls down before Paul and Silas. Our next passage is Romans 15, verse 9. Romans 15, verse 9. The Bible says, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written... Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. Now, the reason we're reading these passages, the reason we're connecting these passages, is these are passages from the New Testament where you see people singing in service to God in some fashion. And here in Romans chapter 15 verse 9, a quote from the Old Testament, "Therefore I give praise to you among the Gentiles. Now the word Gentiles could be translated nations. In the Old Testament probably is it could be also and many times is, but you notice in context, that Romans 15 verses 9 through 12 tie together four Old Testament passages that mention Gentiles. Notice the word Gentiles is mentioned twice in verse 9, once in verse 10, once in verse 11, and twice in verse 12. So you have a mention of Gentiles six times in four verses because Paul Paul is constructing Paul is carefully constructing his argument to show that Gentiles and Jews are brought together here particularly in verse 9 by praising and singing together now let's review this context and I know uh, that Chris and uh, Jesse have been teaching in Romans and some of this we have discussed But in the book of Romans, there's a lot of emphasis on Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. And look at some of the places they're mentioned together. Look at Romans 2. In Romans 2, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil... Of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek is not in any other New Testament epistle. Not in any other New Testament book. For that matter not in any other biblical book. Besides Romans. And Jews and Gentiles had the same warning of tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil, to the Jew first, to the Greek. They have the same promise of hope, glory, and honor to all who do good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But the problem is, whether you're Jew or whether you're Greek, you're all guilty before God. Look at Romans 3 verse 9. In Romans 3 verse 9, again we're emphasizing Jews and Gentiles together. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The reason that we are lost, desperately lost, and desperately in need of salvation is because in spite of the same warnings and the same promises, we have all sinned in the same way. As Romans 3, 23 sums up this act, idea all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 11 verse 32 God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all you see Jew and Gentile mentioned together they are in the same predicament and they all have the same hope and the same Savior In Romans 3, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And there is no distinction. Paul makes a point. Romans 4, the argument is based in Romans 4 on the fact that Abraham was told His faith was credited as righteousness. It's a quote from Genesis 15, verse 6. It's quoted in Romans 4, 3, Romans 4, 9, and Romans 4 and verse 22. His faith was reckoned as righteousness. But notice that Paul is so careful with Scripture. He quotes this from Genesis 15, 6. And says, when was this said? When Abraham was circumcised? Or when he was uncircumcised? Abraham is given the command of circumcision in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 15, 6, it was said, his faith was credited as righteousness. Which circumstance was Abraham in when he received that statement? Circumcised? or uncircumcised he was uncircumcised and so Abraham being the father of the faithful and the father of all who believe is not simply a promise to the circumcised but to the uncircumcised in Romans 1 for I'm not ashamed of the power of God for it's the gospel is a, I'm not ashamed of the, of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes and hear a phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek now I know that that is bringing in a lot and you're saying what is the point okay my point, fair question, look back in Genesis 15, or Romans 15 excuse me, Romans 15 after Romans 15 verse 6 so with one accord you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ Often the word one in the Bible does not emphasize number as much as unity. With one accord and with one voice, Jews and Gentiles who share the same problem, who experience the same salvation who share the same hope with one voice with one accord praising God together now obviously Romans 15 has to refer to some situation where Jews and Gentiles are together they're together as they worship together in that church at Rome. I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. And I will sing to your name. But what is emphasized in this? I think it shows us what they did when they were together, when they were in assembly. But what's emphasized here particularly is purpose of singing. The purpose of singing is it shows the unity between Jews and Gentiles. As one writer said, Everett Ferguson, in his masterful work, singing together symbolizes and expresses the unity of the church. Singing together symbolizes and expresses the unity of the church. He goes on to say it not only expresses unity, but it helps to affect unity. Ambrose of Milan lived from 339 to 397. Milan is in northern Italy for those who are not familiar with it. And Ambrose made this statement as he was a prolific writer. He wrote this on Psalm 1. Psalms unite those who disagree. Make friends of those at odds. Bring together those who are out of charity with one another. Who can retain a grievance against the man whom he has joined in singing before God? They are expressing the idea of this passage. The way that Jews and Gentiles demonstrate their oneness. The way they demonstrate their togetherness is as they praise God together in song. So, singing declares God's mighty works. Singing praises God and exalts what He's done and leads the even unbeliever to fear and turn to the Lord. But singing expresses unity. Among Jews and Gentiles. One more passage that we will try to look at tonight is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14 says in verse 15, What is the outcome then? I will pray with the mind, I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit. And I will sing with the mind also. So he mentions praying, he mentions singing. Now, I want to tell you if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, if you don't believe this, investigate it, search it out, search it out as diligently as you want to. But 1 Corinthians 14, the context is the assembly of the local congregation and that is stated over and over and over in this text in verse 4 one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself but one who prophesies edifies the church he's talking about a situation where they are all together in worship The same situation in verse 5. Notice he even says in a verse like 26. What is the outcome then brethren? When you assemble. Each one has a psalm. Has a teaching. Has a revelation. In verse 23. Therefore if the whole church assembles together. This is clearly in the context of brethren gathering together to worship In a local congregation. Now again it's interesting. In this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 14. What they do. In just from this chapter. From this chapter you see them singing. In verse 15. In verse 26. When you assemble each one has a psalm. Has a teaching. Has a revelation. But they have a psalm. They are singing. They are Praying In verse 15, I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with the understanding. He emphasizes that if you pray in a tongue, how will the one that's unlearned or ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks? He's talking about prayer. And he's talking about prophecy or teaching, which is basically an inspired form of teaching. Now, he doesn't talk about the Lord's Supper in this context. But he did talk about that. In 1 Corinthians 11, as we pointed out a few weeks ago. Paul is conscious when he writes this word. That he's speaking God's revelation. Sometimes the picture has been given of Paul. That if he came back today and walked into a Bible study that he would be say that people are reading his epistle as if it had permanent value. That is totally wrong. Paul was fully conscious that the things he wrote, he wrote by revelation of God. He said in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things I write to you are the Lord's commandment. He is writing by revelation of God. And he didn't teach one thing in Corinth, and another, somewhere else, he said in 1 Corinthians 4.17, this is I teach everywhere in every church. In 1 Corinthians 7.17, and so I direct all the churches. A passage I do not have on the slide, but in 1 Corinthians 16.1, as I have directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. It is interesting in 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul does mention the instrument, but not her instruments, not in the context of how they worshiped in the local church. But look at verse 7. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 7. For even lifeless things, either flute, in a produce or harp in producing a sound if they do not produce distinction in tones how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp then he mentions the bugle in verse 8 he mentions the instruments here but not in the sense they're used in worship for in worship he mentions singing and singing involves the whole person What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit. I will pray with the mind. I will sing with the spirit. I will sing with the mind. And Paul emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 14 that everything we do in services is to edify, to build up. We talked about the Lord's service. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are doing something in worship that expresses that which is central in the Bible. And may it be when we're seeing that God has carefully devised what we do in public worship and what we do privately in worship. What, What we do in private situations like Paul and Silas in that prison And I know many families that sing together in personal Bible studies, that sing together as they are going on trips. What we're doing is a way God has designed to conform us to his image. I can remember a person that was working in a nursing home, among patients who had memory loss. (laughs) So we have patients who could not tell you their name. They could not tell you anybody who comes to see them, whether it be husband, wife, son, or daughter, they couldn't tell you any of their names. But they know every word of amazing grace. And they can sing every word. Could it be that the God who made it? And a God who knows who we are and what we are designed this as a way to perform us into his image. Another writer, and I read this many years ago, could not find it again. But he told his experiences as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. He said, as he lifted his parachute to jump, had just escaped his plane and, and, and was being carried by his parachute, he knew he was soon going to be taken and arrested. And he said, Lord, he said, I haven't prayed in 20 years. I hope you're still listening. He said, as he was taken to his prison cell, he described the inhuman condition that they lived in. (laughs) How much sickness they endured and how much weight they lost. And the brutality they received. received. He describes all of this. But he said, most of the men that were in there, we developed a way to communicate with each other by taps, by knocks, by coughs, even. And he said, as we did that, most of the men were in the same situation that I was. Most of them had not thought about God for years when we were healthy and strong. But he said, it was amazing as we were in those cells how many Bible verses we remembered, how many songs we remembered and we would communicate those one to another to help us, to strengthen us to sustain us he and most all of those men lived through that process and they were strengthened by the scriptures they knew by the songs they remembered from childhood that sang of God that sang of his that sang of his amazing grace. Truly, this has the power to exalt God, to unify believers, to proclaim his name to an unbelieving world and to strengthen and edify us for what we face in life. Thank you for listening. We have other verses we didn't get to. And we'll we want to. But thank you for listening. Maybe as we sang even, you're convicted of your need for God, your need for His forgiveness, your need for His mercy. We all face the same problems. The problem of sin, the solution is the same. The death of Jesus Christ. He died for you. And he wants you to be forgiven and say, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again and you're willing to turn your life, to turn away from sin and walk toward Him, if you in god He will wash away every sin. And we invite you to come as we stand. Thank <laughs> you.